Welcome to Planet Pod, the podcast for everyone who cares about the planet. listening to Planet Pod with me, Amanda Carpenter. And today we're going to talk about that tricky subject of how the environment and the law interact and what we can and should be doing as, as individuals and as those of us who have positions of influence and power. So I'm delighted to be joined by my guest today, Estelle Dehon from uh, Cornerstone Barristers and a well-known advocate for the environment. Um, and by Dr. Vanita Cooney, who's a consultant physician specialising in occupational and environmental medicine. Welcome both. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank um, you our climate is in crisis and extreme situations demand extreme actions, or at least that is what some in the burgeoning climate activism movement believe. And so whether that's young people at school and college taking to the city streets to demand that their parents and those with power take notice or whether it's the more high-profile and no less vocal Extinction Rebellion demonstrators engaging in direct access across the world. Or, more locally, perhaps it's anti-frackers protesting outside sites as far apart as Sussex and Lancashire. There's a sense that the voices in support of the planet are growing louder. So I wonder, with that as a kind of context, perhaps I could start with you, Vanita, because your background is around um, environment and health, and there's a really interesting juxtaposition. So... As the chair of the Working Party on Public Health and Environmental Law, I have to say I didn't know such a thing existed until I did my research. What is the connection and how do they interconnect? In terms of environment and health, I think we've known since the beginning, really, um, that uh, breathing dirty air, drinking dirty water and eating contaminated food really isn't good for our health. Um, It's been a gut feeling, a visceral feeling, Um, Now we have uh, quantitative data, reproducible, robust data uh, from a plethora of uh, scientific uh, studies to conclusively show that there's a causal link between environmental pollution and adverse health outcomes. Um, In the media, for example, air pollution and asthma is dominant for obvious reasons, but uh, certainly my area of interest in terms of medicine and the environment is the scope of ill health associated with environmental pollution. It's so wide. So every person on the planet, of every age, every class, every profession will be affected by environmental pollution some way. Um, You don't even have to be born uh, to actually be affected by environmental pollution because of the teratogenic effects of heavy metals, for example, on a developing foetus. So as as a physician in my day job, coalface healthcare provision, Um, I care about people's health. And people care about their health, particularly the health of their children. And I think the narrative has seismically changed, notably over the last sort of three to five years, that the general public have become increasingly interested in the air that they breathe, the water that they drink, the food that they eat and so forth, in a way that they didn't before. And the, and the trigger for that change in narrative really is an increased awareness of how living in a polluted world is adversely affecting the health of them, their families, and particularly their children. So it's a fascinating um, connection for me. Love being a doctor, love the medicine, love the science, 
but I've been a, a passionate environmentalist since I was a tot. So um, I, I sort of carved out a niche for myself in terms of becoming interested in environmentally related illness. And then, of course, I discovered Eukayla. Um, I very, just out of sheer interest, I did a master in environmental law about four years ago and came across Eukayla. And even though it's a predominantly uh, legal association, it's very welcoming of non-legal practitioners. So um, that's why I set up the Public Health Environmental Law Working Party, primarily to, to bring together a whole range of disciplines uh, that traditionally work in, in isolation, that speak in silos and echo chambers. It's been hugely successful, um, which I'm delighted about. Um, so hence, a, a today like today, bringing together an eminent lawyer, uh, a simple doctor... Uh, and scientists is, is quite unique, I mm. feel, and I think it's very exciting. So would you say that the law is failing us in terms of our health in relation to the environment? Quick answer, yes, for sure. Um, there, there is definitely room for improvement. Um, and that's no criticism necessarily of the law per se, because there's always a time lag uh, between um, development of new law um, and catching up with new science. Um, but we have reached a point in time whereby the law has an opportunity now to am- amend itself or it's to be inter- interpreted in a different way by the judiciary to take into account new evidence um, about how uh, environmental harm is linked with adverse health outcomes. Now, whether that requires a new legislation, I don't know. I don't, I'm not a lawyer. I don't know how difficult it would be to create a new Public Health Act, for example, or a new Clean Air Act. I don't know. But I think the law has been reasonably successful to date at limiting damage done. It uh, certainly hasn't got us to our utopian focus, um, but I'm certainly not one of these lay people who would look to the law and think, ah, oh, you've been useless. I think we'd be in a much worse state without the law that we have. Estelle, I mean, that's very interesting, isn't it? Because a lot of the, the, the work, particularly I think about the air pollution case, it's been very much about reactive. So there's been an incident, somebody has had, you know, suffered poor health or, or, or died, and then a case is brought, and then, you know, the law is tested or perhaps changed. Do you think there's a role for perhaps forward thinking a little bit more, maybe preempting those things that we know are going to be coming down the line and putting in place laws now? There is, although what I would say in my experience, uh, and this has been interesting across a number of areas for me, is that things in the law have lain there almost dormant until people realise their potential to be exploited to get to a particular end. And I think we've seen that in the area of public health generally, and I'll say a little bit about that in a second, and in the area of... Uh, air quality in particular, because there's always been requirements in the law brought to us from Europe, but embraced by the United Kingdom, to do with air quality and air quality impacts and monitoring and um, having the requisite levels in place to ensure proper air quality um, for people's health. And that's kind of sat there for ages, and then um, Client Earth came along and looked at the data and said well, we're failing, and why is nobody saying anything about that? And so they brought a series of cases which have been uh, 
incredibly successful in a way that I didn't think anybody anticipated. And that was using the law that's there at the moment. Similarly, we've had since 1995 an obligation um, for development to consider in certain circumstances, especially big development, the public health impact of the development. And that's been there for ages. And all of a sudden, that started to become important in cases like um, minerals development, fracking, coal mining, where people are suddenly saying, well, look, you've got this, in, this uh, requirement to consider the public health impact of what you're doing. You're not doing it properly because you're not taking into account the evidence that's now there about impact. And so that's been a way in to challenge, to limit, uh, to take the law where it needs to go. Do I think that there's a role for legal reform? Potentially. Um, I think we're always slightly um, worried that we legislate when we, we think we need something to change and we haven't really looked at what is there to be exploited in now. Um, but I think then there may be a role for the law that's there at the moment to be beefed up. And I think, finally, just in, on this point, a little bit about the climate change legislation, because we have excellent climate change laws in place, but they've never really been directly enforceable by people, although that's starting to be looked at. And they require the government to keep up to date, but at the moment we're starting to fall behind. But again, there's now through uh, potential legal challenge, the government is being driven to look at reviewing our carbon budget and getting more in line with what we see now as the requirements. And that's the right approach, I think. Anita, do you think people are not stepping up enough? So, I mean, you say people are concerned about their health and you're concerned about people's health. I mean, should we as individuals or perhaps as communities be doing more to raise our voices and say, look, you know, there is an issue here that perhaps needs addressing either by law or by by the health service or, or by us as a community? I mean, is there a role for people's engagement and activism around health and the environment? Oh, certainly. Um, I think, um, and there will be, there, there will be, that there, there is a, a palpable change in attitude towards, uh, it, it, amongst the general public, about environmental pollution, how it impacts on their health, most definitely. I have absolutely no data to show you to, to justify that statement. It's just anecdotal evidence. Um, so absolutely protest has a role to play because, as Stelle said before, you know, you, you know, it, public protest does and it, through history has shaped political and societal change. There's, there's a, multiple examples to illustrate that public protest does um, change the direction of, of a country um, so, yes, the public do have to step up. They absolutely do have a role. Now, how they do that and how they collaborate and galvanise, um, how they feel in a, in a constructive way that manifests itself in an in a orderly fashion in the form of a, um, a law-abiding protest is another, another matter. But um, social media, I think, is probably much more powerful than marching on the streets because oh, it's, it's interesting it's, that you say that. Why, why do you think that? Well, uh, I'm not a social media hound, I'm, I must admit. However, I mean, just observing it, really, social media is a hugely powerful tool mm. uh, for seismic change politically and in society. You know, um, for example, um, the Arab Spring, mm. the good and bad effects of the Arab Spring. 
it, that, that spread like wildfire through communication via social media um, mm. communication methods. So it's a very romantic idea, I feel, that you march on the streets... With your placard. With your placard, <laughs> homemade preferentially, <laughs> with, a, with a, uh, a witty comment across it, uh, and you risk sitting down on a bridge and risk being arrested... You know, those sort of are uh, nice tales of idealistic 16-year-olds, you know. Um, but whether they actually facilitate seismic shift in, in, in today's political attitude towards very important points like climate change and environmental pollution, I'm not too sure. Um, just look at how one celebrity um, who has 35 million followers can actually crash a makeup uh, company or an app you know they can they can really change the, the way people buy, how they perceive things, how they behave. Um, so social media, I think, is the route. Um, I don't think march with placards is the route. I think it's had its day. Ooh, it's I don't know. I think Estelle's going to differ there. I, I am. I am going to differ. I'm, I'm going to differ. I suppose not. Not absolutely. I'm going to differ uh, a little bit. Because I think Vanita's right that social media and the power of that is incredibly important. But I think it's being harnessed by people on the streets with placards. And I think in particular about Greta Thunberg mm. and the school strikes. Um, she, she, for me, exemplifies, and then all the school kids um, exemplify that dual use of being out there as a physical presence on the road with the placard and having that voice amplified through social media. And we've seen how, um, through, th- through that kind of staged um, process, Greta Thunberg has had an extraordinary impact. You know, speaking at international conferences, speaking direct to governments, speaking direct to children, and then children in the, across the world reacting. And I saw the most wonderful piece, actually, on um, school kids up in Preston... Um, who were organising uh, a, a school strike and a climate protest, and how you know they they felt that at, at in areas that aren't um, big cities in smaller cities like Preston, they felt oh well maybe we're not going to get as much of a reaction, and it was a much smaller protest than in other areas, but it was incredibly important for those kids, and they got out on the street, and then they multiplied their impact through social media through getting. The, both the mainstream media and social media are involved. So I do see it as important. Uh, a couple of other things I'd just like to jump in on, um, just to mention uh, about whether protest works in general. Um, I listened to an absolutely fascinating documentary on Radio 4 by Zoe Williams about how activism over the various decades um, has uh, impacted and has had an impact And she came up with two quite interesting things. First, protesters very often think that what they do doesn't work. And in fact, they feel like they have to say that what they have done hasn't achieved its end because otherwise they're they're kind of pinned as delusional. But in fact, exactly as Vanita has been saying, when you look at the change in public discourse, there can be, um, you can track, in fact, a very clear change when people get on the streets to um, a change in policy, a change in public discourse, and that was fascinating. And then for me as a lawyer, especially as a lawyer that's looking to take cases that push the law, uh, it's an incredible source of um, people wanting to change things to go to the protest community. And some of my most important clients 
have come from that community and have been and in fact have become members of that community um, in essence unwillingly they've had the, the the issue thrust on them be it fracking be it open cast coal mining you know they've, they've they've come from lives where they never imagined that they would be protesters where they never imagined they'd even think about challenging the law or even stepping outside of it god forbid and then they find themselves in this circumstance where events overtake them and they end up, you know, locking themselves to a fence outside a fracking site and then thinking about taking their fracking company to court. And they look... They have been, for me, A, a source of immense inspiration and B, they've been some of the most important clients that I have had to help develop the law. And I don't think they fall into your stereotype of the 16-year-old and the idealist with the homemade placard. Though we do love a homemade placard. Oh, I do, yes, yeah. for sure. I mean, I think that, you know, my experience is certainly, you know, we've had Extinction Rebellion on the pod and also, you know, been on some of their demonstrations, is actually they are a wide cross-section of the population. And they're, you know, I was talking to people on the bridge and they were, you know, some were retired, some were in their kind of late 70s and 80s and said, we've never done this before. We wouldn't dreamt, dreamt of doing this before. We've never been on a protest. We've never been on a demonstration. You know, but we're here because we feel this is important, and perhaps climate change goes beyond some of those other issues that people have taken to the streets about, because it affects all of us, doesn't it? And 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 it's so local. And your example there about you know what's happening in Preston, that's local communities, local lives. It's my street. It's it's the field at the bottom of of my road, mm-hmm. and I think it galvanises people in a way that perhaps other issues haven't done. Mm-hmm. You know, so maybe so maybe the, there's a. I mean, and there is a role for protest, isn't there? But it has to sit along. Side some of those other instruments, like you know the big high-profile climate, you know climate cases that climate to earth bring. Yeah. But but if your point, you know, is that people care about their health, so they've got to care about this stuff. And and if they have nowhere else to go, perhaps taking to the streets and then tweeting and posting about mm-hmm. it is the answer. Yes, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, ultimately, people have to be very careful who they vote for. Mm. They have to vote. They have to vote. Yeah. Um, that's the first thing I think. Uh, when you look at the stats after every general election, it's all very heart-sinky, isn't it? The percentage of the population actually vote, uh, and even less so in local elections. Mm. Um, so people have to be very careful who they vote for. Um, and overall, uh, once again, anecdotally, uh, people are very disengaged with uh, the political system. And that's very unfortunate, because it's only through the political system that change will ultimately happen. Um, so in terms of the mode of communication to spread the word um, schools are fantastic the conversations that happen outside schools when mm. you know, women and men are picking up their children after school is phenomenal that's where it all happens that's where real seismic societal change happens is at the school gates um, and the reason is because um, we, can, we can discuss what we might um, think is is right but we all know what's wrong viscerally we all know what's Mm. wrong Mm. um and what we viscerally know is wrong is making our children sick yeah there's very few people i would imagine on this planet i'm sure there are some that that believe making children sick is an okay thing to do the vast majority of people don't think that's an okay thing to do um and this is what i'm finding in my day-to-day job day in day out speaking to to parents of, of patients that's what they care about. They don't necessarily care about them as individuals. They may have asthma or emphysema. They'll still carry on smoking 30 a day. But they really do care about their children's asthma. Um, so it, it's, it's that link. It, it, I think that is going to be where the energy comes from 
to facilitate change in narrative and ultimately change uh, narrative around policy. Mm. Um, but people do have to engage with the political system and they do have to vote. Do you think people feel... I mean, we hear a lot I mean, that people feel disempowered. They don't feel able to engage with the system. They feel... I mean, and probably the case with law too, People would, for many people... It's something they know nothing about. It would seem a bit frightening, a bit difficult to, to, to connect with. I mean, how do we bring that energy back into our wider public debate so people can feel empowered to, or in, in engaged in politics or in, in you know, approaching law for help when they need it or forcing change in law? I mean, what do we need to do to make people you know, sit up and take notice? Estelle? Wow, if we knew the answer to that Ooh. question, many, many of the ills of the world would be solved. It, it is, it's very difficult. I, I can't, there can't be one thing, right? I think there, have to, there, there has to be a number of things that we can do. I think making information accessible to people and really, really strong, good information accessible to people is one way. Because sometimes people, when they, when they go out and they feel like they want to engage... Um, they they feel if if they don't have the the backup behind them, then they find that difficult to do. Uh, I think second, um, having lots of different things that you can do. So feeling like you can engage just via you know signing an online petition, or feeling that you can engage because you don't want to, you don't want to go online, but you want to meet with your you know local people around the kitchen table and decide whether you know where, can can you lobby your local council. Or, you know, getting a crowdfunded case together. There must be lots of different ways that people can engage. There's an interesting question about this, though, stepping back. And it's one that's been asked about Extinction Rebellion, actually, is, is if you've got something that's leaderless, if you've got something that's very dispersed, if you've got something that is a lot of different people with lots of different agendas coming together, is that ever going to lead to change? And I think that's the great question that is facing us in this era of protest and of taking, you know, taking issues forward to government, is when you don't have that kind of single or several single points of, of leadership taking things forward, can if change be affected? And I think the, the jury's still out on that. I think it, it, probably the answer is yes, although it's going to be perhaps a more incremental process than, than we've seen changes before. One last thing I'd say about the case law um, and people feeling, feeling disempowered, because I'm very, very conscious. And in fact, I, when I attended one of the um, protests at the fracking site, Quadrilla's site up in Preston New Road in Lancashire, um, I was very kindly I was asked to speak. And I absolutely acknowledged to the crowd that was there that people feel that even when they've gone to the law, they've not succeeded They've been knocked back, and that feels very disempowering. And the message I gave there, and the message that I still think is the right one, is that uh, even those cases where we lose, they form the stepping stone for the next case. And so, for example, um, there was an open-cast coal mine case recently where a very good decision by the government um, was overturned in the courts. So the developer won the court case. But within that court case, the Secretary of State said a number of incredibly important things about the, a change in approach to climate change, about a change in approach to, develop, to understanding the policy. And those of us who were involved in the case were like, right, we disseminate that, and then the next case builds on that. And so I was able to use that as a basis 
for submissions at um, a, an inquiry up in Chester to do with acidization, and I was able to build on that. So even where we lose, incrementally we're able to win. It's a slow burn. It's not the easiest way to get people motivated, but I think it's important to remember that even if we don't, if we might not get the big wins all the time, they're what lead to the big wins. And we are seeing now cases where there's been significant success. Yeah, and I, and you're right. We need to build that body of evidence. Just you were you were saying. I mean, the evidence that you you get anecdotally as well as the ones mm. that you've collected that show that this is you know there's incre- incremental damage being done to us. Finita, and I think um, we all have society has a <clears throat> me, um, a, an intrinsic moral compass, um, the architect of which is multifactorial, and, and the law is part of that architecture in terms of a society's moral compass. And in terms of psychology of behaviour, people have um, people care a lot about certain issues, and they will take a certain amount um, until they reach critical mass. And what I mean by that, they will put up with all sorts of difficulties, adversity, and then something will happen. The sort of uh, the straw that broke the camel's back. They'll think, right, that's enough. I've had enough. Now I'm going to do something about this. Um, and throughout society, um, the moral compass will not be shifted on certain points. So I was going to ask you a question, Estelle. You know the Ellie Kissy Deborah case, mm. um, the details of which I'm not 100% sure this of. This is the little girl who this died. This is the little girl. Um, taking the yes. That's right. Yeah. So it, it's um, the sort of narrative that I understand behind the case is that... Um, Yes, poor little girl, she was only nine. The, the, the argument is that her asthma, long-standing asthma, was fatally aggravated by the air that she was breathing near her home. And uh, her lawyer, Joyce Coburn, I think the lady's name is, um, is, is arguing that uh, the, the coroner's assessment for the reasons for the little girl's death should be revised in such a way that air pollution should be in, in, incorporated yeah. with one of the contributory as one of the contributory factors for her death. So, do you think, in terms of the law and the evolution of the law, if Joyce Coburn is successful in this case, do you think that would be something that would give momentum behind the narrative that new legislation is required? to address environmental pollution now that we know there's enough data, scientific data, to link exposure and outcome? Potentially. Mm. Potentially, yes. Uh, And it's a bit like um, I was saying earlier about the need for a leader, a leading case like this, Mm. which is incredibly accessible on a human level across the board. A leading case like that, when you get a, a result that says... This, this human, this child, her death was hastened by this thing that we should be able to control better by the law. That's an incredibly powerful tool. So I can see that. But I don't think the opposite is true. So imagine the case fails because, for any number of reasons, because the role of the coroner is a limited role because um, in that particular circumstance what the coroner did was reasonable and the courts don't want to intervene when overall there's been a reasonable decision. There's all sorts of reasons why that might not succeed. I don't think that that will mean that the impetus behind the story is necessarily diminished at a political level Mm. for wanting change. 
So I think if you succeed, that galvanises, but that does, doesn't necessarily entirely undermine the point that the case makes. And the reason why I pick up Ellie's case is uh, because a number of parents who know about Ellie, mm. you know, they say, oh, we know Ellie, as if they know her personally. Yeah. They've been following the case out of sheer interest because yes. they also have a nine-year-old or 11-year-old who has asthma. So it's very interesting from a doctor's perspective and somebody who's interested in psychology of behaviour that it's usually rubies in the rubble, isn't it? Yeah that facilitate change, you know, as tragic as Ellie's case is, in my humble view, it's a small point along a long line of political and societal points made over the last sort of 30, 40 years we've been trying to uh, tackle climate change. It's the case of a nine-year-old little girl in North London. Uh, that's very powerful. That's, that's a, as you say, so that's a human story behind the politics, the parliamentary narrative, the media headlines, which people just disregard. It's it's boring. Um, they've, they've disengaged from Brexit, for example, even though Brexit, no matter what side of the, the Brexit camp you sit, um, has seismically shifted the narrative around all sorts of issues in this country. Um, but the public themselves think, oh, yeah, just get on with it. I'm, not, I'm bored with it all now. So it's usually that the, uh, the humanity behind the argument you know, that people can relate to on a day-to-day basis. So I, I personally follow Ellie's case with great interest, and I wish her mother well. I think that's why people gather together and protest, though, isn't it? Because you need a human dimension, and, and while social media is massively important, you're, it's quite isolating. So you could be doing your social media communication on your own, you know, in your, around your kitchen table or in your bedroom, whereas if you're on the streets with a group of people, there's something powerful and energising about that, mm-hmm. I think. And so I think that's possibly why we're seeing that rise in people's need to congregate and make their voices heard. Mm. And it's a, it's a way, as you've said, it's a way through for people who would never normally have done that. Mm. Yes. So um, just to give uh, a small example, and then I'd like to say something a little bit about what you just said about social media. Uh, one of the loveliest experiences I had um, is a group of sisters that I do a lot of work with, um, an amazing environmental campaigning um, group of sisters, Richard Buxton. Um, they uh, invited a couple of us who do a lot of work with them to go and see a play in Cambridge. And the play was called Fract, or Please Don't Use the F Word. Mm-hmm. And it was by Alistair Beaton. And it was all about... A, a couple, um, the it, retired academic and her husband, and she starts to understand about fracking, and she suddenly finds herself going from being a law-abiding citizen all her life to being out on the streets and protesting and needing that human kind of group of people around her um, to take the steps that she sees needing to be taken. And it was absolutely fantastic. And it absolutely captured, I think, what a lot of has happened with environmental movements across this country, that communities have reacted in a very human way mm-hmm. to what they see confronting them. And when they see all the usual routes that they have to deal with the matter blocked because of government policy or because of whatever, politics, then they take to the streets. I think for some of us of a particular generation, maybe, going to onto social media. I think some of us find social media alienating. I think a younger generation is exactly the opposite. Mm. I think they find that their, their area where they feel most connected to people 
um, sometimes difficult for us to understand can be social media and so that they might feel more connected to the people that they're engaging with on Twitter that they're you know where, where they pop up on people's timelines on Facebook that they feel more connected to that yeah and so for us um, being on the streets is important for them on the streets and on social media is equally as important I think they would say that that's their form of protest very often as well. Yeah. They gather those groups together and they empower them. It's interesting you said that you thought Extinction Rebellion were, were leaderless. I was from someone the other day who said they, they hadn't joined because they were so bureaucratic. <laughs> and they are in some ways terribly bureaucratic because they have all sorts of, you know, briefings and policies and layers and, and engagement and, you know, this group and that group. So, so I think they are... Not leaderless, perhaps, in the sense they don't have one single figure, although mm. I think suspect Roger is probably that figure for many people. Mm. But I think actually probably they're very they're very structured at a local level and it's about that local empowerment and that local engagement. So it's a, so maybe they, they don't need leaders. Maybe yes. that's also, yeah. But it's so what's our call to action? What can we do? What can Planet Pod listeners do to, to, to really push the change on this in terms of, of environment and health and and making making those politicians and those lawmakers and policymakers take notice. Finita. Um I think we need. I think we need to use the system that we have in place. And when you can lobby your local MP, um, you can get involved with politics. You can um, ensure that you are interested in the subject matter. Inform yourself. Um, go on um, social media and, and, and basically understand the subject matter better. So ultimately, environmental harm is a social justice issue. Um, and the, the problem is we can't facilitate um, societal change without engaging our political system. Even though the parliamentary process is very cumbersome, it takes a long time for, uh, for things to change, that's the only way change is going to happen the other aspect is that people have to be careful what they buy. They need to be aware about how they consume, how they behave, what cars they buy, where they go on holiday, what clothes they wear, because there is a disconnect between how we feel on a day-to-day basis, um, which is, feels quite good, actually, compared to the Industrial Revolution. You know, life is quite good in the Western world for most people. Um, but the state of nature does not feel the same way. Uh, so there's a disconnect between how we feel on a day-to-day basis and the state of nature. So on the surface, it almost looks like, well, we have a great life because of the sake of nature. You know, we can't have a good life, the life that we have now, without continuing to behave as badly as we have done so. And that's the price we're willing to pay. And in terms of trying to switch that paradox, reverse it, it's going to be incredibly difficult and that's, my, that's the centre of my argument, how we switch it, is to ensure that people understand more fully that, that nature is not something you go and look at in a zoo, it's not something that's stuck in a national park, it's actually part of your life, it's part of the urban fabric, it's, it's, that's, it's something that makes you have a job, you have economic prosperity, you know, it makes your, your kids well, the psychological and psychiatric impacts of decreased exposure to nature is, is, is not to be underestimated. Um, so it's trying to make people understand that, that it isn't a binary choice between economic prosperity and protecting nature. Um, and the way we um, create an overarching theme to link the two is that environmentally related illness is a social justice issue. Estelle? I think there's two things your listeners can do. One, 
take a step, whatever active step you feel comfortable with to engage. That might be as simple as you know, keeping your eye on the local petition or the national petition and signing it. Or that might be getting more involved with your local group or that might be lobbying your MP. There will be steps that you feel com- confident in taking and you should take them. There is no barrier to you taking those steps. So just getting involved in that small way can lead to big things. The second thing is a very kind of personal approach to how you address it. For me, I think the, the overarching issue is climate change. So one, look at whether your, pro- your property, your building where you're living is properly insulated. The one small thing that we can do that would have a giant change is actually properly insulating and having buildings that breathe properly, that don't let off too much heat, but that don't keep in too much heat. Just if your property was properly insulated, that would take us a very far way down the line. And second, when you're thinking about what you consume, especially in terms of food, maybe think about the choices around meat and meat. Don't, I'm not saying everybody here in the world has to be vegan. I'm just saying, you know, you might want to reduce here and there. You might want to choose to buy something that hasn't travelled. Small choices can have a big impact. I really believe that. I think every individual making a small choice can have a big impact. We believe that firmly at Planet Pod as well. So thank you both so much, um, Vanita and Estelle. Fascinating. And there's so much more to do. And we're so glad that you're fighting on our behalf. Thank you to my guests and thank you for listening. We would love to hear from you about what you think about Planet Pod. You can tweet at planet underscore pod or get in touch via the website theplanetpod.com where you can subscribe and download previous episodes. If you've enjoyed today's show, please give us a five-star review. It helps us make better programmes. Be sustainable and stay green. Planet Pod is an Akil Sounds production hosted by me, Amanda Carpenter, edited and produced by Jim Haywood, with additional research by Beth Palmer.